Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Traxler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Good morning. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm Carolyn Ford here with Eric Trexler. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, and Carolyn. Who do we have today? Well, somebody that you've been looking forward to talking to. Trish Cagliostro, Head of Business Development for Security, Worldwide Public Sector at Amazon. She is a leader in the security industry where she spent 10 years advising public and private sector customers like DISA, DHS, and the U.S. Senate. Good morning, Trish. Thank you for bearing with us this morning. Good morning, and thanks for having me. I'm kind of excited to talk to you too, Trish, because I I struggle with cloud. I don't get it. Like, it's this big nebulous entity to me, like something in the sky. I don't understand how it's secure. Honestly, every time my photos get backed up to the cloud, I think, who else can see these? So help me understand how it, how is, how is it secure? Sure. So, and, and you hit on a common thing that we tend to run into with customers where there's a lot of uncertainty when they're moving to the cloud from a security perspective. Um, for us, security is, is our top priority. It's job zero for us. It's in everything we do. Um, we, we take the approach of trying to make sure the customers have the most secure environments to operate in. And then when you think about cloud security, a really important part to understand from the customer side is the concept of shared responsibility. So we're going to offload some of the responsibilities from the customer because that's the other conversation I'll have with customers. They're like, okay, cool, go to the cloud, I'm done, now, now I'm good. And, and you know, part of that, my, my role is helping customers understand, you know, what is your responsibilities? And when, the cool thing about AWS is that for us, we provide customers with a lot of different tools that they can use to, to ultimately get to where they need to from a security perspective. So how they meet that side of the shared responsibility model. What you're talking about is pretty common. And, but what's interesting though, is that, you know, as, as you've seen over the last couple of years, one of the really interesting things I've seen in the customer base is there is this shift from that, is the cloud itself secure to more of a focus on, well, how am I going to do what I need to do in the cloud from a security perspective? So a lot of times that'll drive customers to move to the cloud because of scale. Um, the nature of being AWS means that we can invest a lot more in security resources than most organizations can do on their own. And so when they migrate to the cloud, a lot of that undifferentiated heavy lifting gets kind of taken away from them and they can rely on some of the things that we're doing. So but what you're talking about isn't uncommon, but actually it's a lot of the reasons why people start to move to the cloud is they do see it as something that's more secure as what they could do on premise. So Carolyn, well, that's what I mean. Carolyn, so, I, go ahead, I, I would say some of the big pieces there, economies of scale. Right. Yeah. I, I had a customer back years ago, 2008, nine timeframe, and I was with Salesforce.com at the at that point. And, and, and they were talking about their risk to move to the cloud and and is security covered and, and can you do this and can you do that? And what about scalability? And when we really got down into it, it was orders of magnitude off the off the charts compared to what this organization and, and when I more secure. Off the um, secure, right? We were looking at physical security of the data center, security of the data. You could go to like the trust.salesforce.com website just to pick on Salesforce for a second and, and see uptime. With this organization, which was a Manhattan-based massive 
couple hundred year old organization. You can tell what was up from at, at any given time, let alone security, mm. who was in charge. And the IT team was, it wasn't their business, right? So they were, they were, they were hyper uh, uh, under optimized if, if, if I can go there. So Trish, I agree with you. I mean, I think that consolidation of effort, the economies of scale can really help, but the shared responsibility models for the CSPs, you know, they're not necessarily understood that well yet, at least what I'm well, saying. That's interesting. Yeah. What you just said, Trish, the shared responsibility is interesting to me because I like to believe what you two both just said, that the cloud is run by a lot of people a lot smarter than me about security and that my stuff's a lot more secure in the cloud because that just makes me feel good and yeah. just easier. But the shared responsibility, I, I guess I haven't thought about. It makes sense. I haven't thought about it. Will you talk a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, watch this. Are her pictures safe and secure, Trish, in the cloud? Yeah. <laughs> so I was actually going to give you an example based on that, right? So if you think about this, right, when you have your iCloud account, right, your iCloud account, um, no matter how secure Apple is, if your password is password123, you're going to have a problem, right? So even as individuals, we have shared responsibility when we think about how we use cloud security service or cloud services in general. If my Facebook account or my Google, because then it gets worse. Let's say I have the same password across all of my different cloud services. If, you know, for example, in the past, like if one of my major social media tools was breached and that password is out there, I'm still using the same password, then I have a problem as an individual. Um, the same idea that I have responsibilities as an individual when I use cloud services, I also do as an enterprise where so they, and they can be as simple as, you know, making good, um, making good decisions in terms of like password security, least privilege, how you design the application. But essentially that same concept is there is that the same way that as individuals, we use those cloud services, we have individual responsibilities, same idea with our cloud, our cloud services that we use as enterprise, you're always going to have some level of responsibility that you have to control and you're going to be responsible to make sure that you're building secure and safe applications. Carolyn, the way I think of it is the cloud service providers or CSPs are responsible for security of the cloud. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The individuals, organizations, enterprises, you name it, they're responsible for security in the cloud. So you setting mm -hmm. your proper password, making sure you're not putting things right. there that, that you shouldn't have there, um, understanding what users are doing with that data, because you know, if we put something into a CSP and then we don't protect it, we put no security around it and an invalid or a legitimate request comes in from a party who shouldn't have access to that data. Well, the CSP is going to do one thing and they're going to do it really, really well. They're going to serve that data up to that request because they don't know it as a legitimate or illegitimate request in most cases. Right. So you own the responsibility for your security in the cloud, which is why we, we always talk about protecting people and the data and, and the cloud is a very secure place as long as you understand the value of your data and who has access to it and what they're doing with so it. So that makes sense. So then why why are we so slow in government to move to the cloud? Ooh, well, COVID, COVID accelerated things, but Trish, what, I mean, what are you seeing? Sure. So you hit the nail on the head. COVID definitely accelerated it. Um, in, in my experience, I think one of the things that I've always seen with government customers is that um, it, it took a lot of time and education in terms of teaching them exactly what the cloud is, how they can use it. Because um, the cloud is this very broad and nebulous term, right? We're, we're talking very much about it as this one thing. There, It could be a work building and bringing an application where it's a lift and shift of a bunch of VMs to the cloud. 
It could be a refactor of your application where you're starting to get into managed services. And so when, when you're the government, you know, it's, it's challenging because you have to kind of ask yourself this question of how should I move to the cloud? Should I try to refactor all my applications and migrate that way, which, which takes time and resource investment? Do I want to lift and shift, which could be a little bit more expensive, but it'll get me there faster and it'll get me started down the path of the cloud. You know, what I see with government agencies and what I see with most organizations in general, honestly, is, is the idea is that you want to get a quick win. Um, don't look at like your most complicated, difficult thing that is going to be super hard to move to the cloud. Let's look and focus on the things that we can relatively easily and kind of grow from there. And so from the government side, you know, there, it, it also involves change, having kind of a different operating cycle. So if you think about a normal, the way a government normally builds an application, I come out with requirements, I, I have this kind of really long process in terms of how I'm going to build a system because when I build a system on premise, it's, it's typically relatively static. I have to physically buy things in order to, to expand my application, new servers, new licenses, et cetera. With the cloud, because that infrastructure is there and it's kind of just expanding, it, it, it challenges the government to think a little bit differently. So I think that's also made it a little bit hard for them because they actually have to think about how they're going to build things, how they're going to buy things a little bit differently than they had in the past. Yeah, if I, if I could follow up, you know, we talked to Dr. Zangardi yeah. last week, Carolyn, remember, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be controversial. So, Trish, don't shake your head yes or no and just be careful here. Um, he, he talked about contractually, you know, we, we don't have the contracts in place. We, the, you know, the, uh, the, con, you know the, the, the billing based on usage as opposed to buy and deploy. He talked about the legacy nature of the applications and how they're all interwoven. I'm going to throw this out there, you know, the workforce, there is a distinct gap between my age group and what I learned on and what we see in the workforce now with the millennials coming up, the trust of the cloud, the understanding of the cloud, it's very different, right? It's almost like electricity. You're giving somebody a service, but you've got to understand it and, and secure it. And a lot of government contractors have no experience. So it's a very scary place. It could put them out of work, right? That's always a big fear in the people I talk to. We've got to move to the cloud, but well, I don't know how to do this. I I see this often with customers. They don't spin down and spin up resources on demand. They just turn them on and let them go. They don't understand the data movement and how, how much they're putting into the cloud or taking out and what that costs and how to optimize that. It's just there's almost a there's almost a generational gap in the way we think, almost like when you had mainframe operators and then we went to open systems. Trish, you don't have to agree or disagree. I know some of that's, con, you know, controversial, but. I didn't think it was too controversial. Oh, well, I let me wrap it up. Something that's. So I think you hit on something that is extremely important and something I definitely see. And frankly, I've seen in my in my entire career, right? So in security, it's the two million, four million, however many millions of people workforce shortage that you tend to see in organizations, right? Where we all know we have a massive security gap. Now, coupled and so prior to the cloud really gaining as much traction as it as it has, frankly, in the last few years, that's existed. And now couple that with okay, well, I just kind of sort of figured out on prem security. Now I have to kind of think about this in a whole different way. And, and think about security when my boundary is changing, what I'm responsible for is changing. And, and you hit the nail on the head that we don't have the, the resources that we need in terms of like ch- skills and training. There's tons of resources about that, that are out there. 
But, you know, who in security goes, man, I have way too much free time on my hands. I just wish I had more things to learn, right? People are struggling to do their regular normal day jobs. And so it, it is a real challenge for organizations. And, and, and something that should be thought about is that if I'm going to make this massive investment, put my, my critical assets somewhere, I want to make sure that I have the resources internally trained, educated, the, the skills that they need, frankly, in order to make sure I maintain it over time. So that's, I, I, I don't think that's controversial at all. I think that's actually a really important point that organizations do need to think about. I know, Trish, that you talk a lot about threat intelligence. I'm just, I'm, I mean, this whole episode, I'm just going to show my ignorance here. I kind of don't get that either. <laughs> but tell me how that comes into play here and, and a good threat intelligence program, if that's the right term, does that help with embracing the cloud? Or am I way off? Sure. Uh, so honestly, I think you're, you're on the nose. So threat intelligence program, totally fair way to say that. Um, and or threat intel team, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, I actually like calling it a program because I think a lot of times when organizations think about threat intelligence, they want to talk about IOCs. They want to say, integrate these IP addresses or these domains with whatever my security tools are. And then, you know, if there's a, a match, I'll, I'm off and running. And that is part of threat intelligence and something that should be done. Um, when you think about threat intelligence, though, I think there's an opportunity to think about a little bit more strategically. Um, and it's, it's frankly, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. So as you're looking at migrating to the cloud, using something like the MITRE attack, pro, uh, the MITRE attack framework, where I'm thinking about not just what are the IOCs that I'm looking for, but do I actually have the tools and techniques that I need to have in place to detect the threats that I want to face? And IOCs, so, so, indicators of threat? Oh, compromise. Indicator of compromise. Sorry okay. about that. IOCs, there we go. So if you think about it this way, right, here's what threat intelligence would solve for you. A guy knocks on your door. What do you do? Well, you probably just answer it, right? But if that guy is FedEx and they have a package, like, great, I definitely want to answer that. I probably want one of my 4,000 Amazon things that I've ordered over the last year. <laughs> um, if it's a guy that is wearing a mask and maybe has a weapon, I probably don't want to answer that. And so what threat intelligence should answer for me is, when I look out my, uh, my people or my ring, if you're me, I use my ring door, my ring doorbell, um, who's actually at my door? And is this someone that I actually want to let in my house? And that's what threat intelligence helps you do on the time and tactical level. That's what an IOC is. It's going to tell me the guy's wearing a mask and holding a knife. You probably, and then I make the decision. I probably want to let him in the door. On the tactical or at the strategic level, though, when I'm thinking about it at a more higher level, well, you know, I, I started this off with, do I open the door when someone knocks? Well, I want to be able to have a ring doorbell so I can see what he looks like. I might want to be able to have, maybe I don't, that's too expensive for, for my home. I just want to have, you know, people at the door. So when you think about threat intelligence at the strategic level, it's about understanding what your risks are, who you are as an organization, and what are the tools that you need to protect and defend yourself as well. And that's something that MITRE attack framework can be really helpful with. Who does that? Where, where does the threat intelligence sit, group sit? Um, so for the most part, it's going to sit in the security organization, either inside of the SOC or as a peer with the SOC. It, it depends on the maturity level of the organization. Um, some organizations don't even have threat intelligence teams. And a lot of the customers that I'll work with, actually, you know, I, I, I come from a threat intel background. If you can't tell, it's probably one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, they're like, look, that's all great and cool. But like, I'm trying to patch my system. So right. like, can, we, can we start a little bit earlier on? So, you know, it really depends on the maturity level, but as you, especially as you become a larger and more mature enterprise, and if you looked at, you know, post COVID and, and things like ransomware, um, 
What's been interesting is that all of a sudden you see organizations that haven't faced that level of sophistication of a threat um, are now targeted because you have healthcare agencies that are, are doing very sensitive research, things like that, state and local in particular. And, you know, our adversaries didn't think, oh, COVID, this is really bad for everyone. Let's take the you know, next six months off. They were like, oh, great. Everybody's really vulnerable. Let's let's go. Let's get after it. Um, and so remote workforce is another challenge in there. But ultimately, you know, when you think about threat intelligence and who does that, it, it's going to be either the organization, it could be your service provider. Um, it, the short answer is a lot of people, but some organizations might not even be ready to take that next step. Yeah, and, and they're groups, Carolyn. They're the ISACs, which Trish helped me yeah. with the ISACs stand for industry. Information. Yeah. Sharing and analysis center. So so you'll see that around energy or so financials where people will mm-hmm. share internally. And and then in government, where I have a good bit of experience with it, you have DHS, you have FBI, you have the intelligence agencies, you have individual groups, depending on what part of the organ, you know, what, what the organization has. Uh, the challenge I've had, Trish, is sharing challenges, consumption challenges. What, what do you share? How do they consume it? How do they automate it? What's the value of the data? Um, and I, I know MITRE came out with sticks and taxi for, I won't get too much deeper here, Carolyn, but for, for sharing and transporting the data in, but it, it's, you can get tons of data just, just flooding you, right? Instead of if someone's at your door with a black ski mask on and a gun in their hand, that's bad. You could get 300,000 notifications about different types of people that could be at your door that are bad. And how do you, how do you go through 300,000 different profiles while you're trying to, while you're looking at that person through the peephole in your door and say, do I, do I, what kind of decision do I make here? So there's a flood of data. I mean, we need automation. And also, do you share, do you share the data inside the organization? How much do you share outside of the organization? I would think that threat intelligence would be valuable to share. Absolutely. And, and you kind of hit, so Sharing is not a problem that is exclusive to figuring out, you know, what do I share externally? A lot of times it's how do I share internally too and, and kind of facilitate information sharing across my own internal teams because sometimes they're siloed. And so, you know, what Eric was talking about is hugely important. It, 10 years ago, threat intelligence was, I just left and went to a new security operations center job. I'm seeing this IP address activity. Let me call my buddy and see what he's seeing right. too. And, and that was information sharing, right? It was on the order of magnitude of, you know, tens of indicators. And then maybe you started to ingest an open source feed and that was cool, but you've got 4,000 false positives. So the thing that was supposed to help you find the bad guy now has you chasing your tail all the time and that's frustrating. And then you started to see the the premium feed sector start to emerge, like the CrowdStrikes, the um, Flashpoints, the different types of feed vendors that are out there that are supposed to give you more specific threat intelligence or more accurate. And, you know, after, after ten, probably five or six years now with threat intelligence, I think there's kind of two ways to think about it. Um, one is an actionable type of intelligence. So things that I know are bad, meaning I can perform some level of, and this is what all needs to be machine to machine, but perform some level of hygiene on it um, using something like a threat intelligence platform to remove false positives and essentially help me identify, you know, what are my high confidence, things I'm pretty sure are accurate. Um, actually bad um, and and you're going to impact my organizations so like command and control or malware, essentially malicious activity. Um, and then also newer because the older indicators are the typically the less useful they are. 
So you have this, this, when you, when you boil that down and you think about all the millions, billions, insert very large number here, potential indicators that are out there, it only comes down to a really small subset of data that I can take and, and push to my devices and say, alert on this, right? Um, the much bigger set is now the question becomes, okay, well, if I can only use a small subset of this inside of my security tools, what do I do with the rest of it? And that's where you get into things like enrichment, right? So helping me understand about an indicator. So if I go to an unknown domain, um, what's the reputation of this domain? What, I, what What's the reputation of this IP address that it resolves back to? So essentially starting to get into helping me inform my decision-making process rather than saying this is definitively bad. Um, but from a threat intel perspective, you know, that is something that a lot of organizations are struggling with is like, what do I do with all this data and how do I actually use it at scale? Because now you get into, so, and I bring that up because in my opinion, as an organization, before you can share, you have to figure out those two pieces first. Yeah. You have to understand what do I do with my actionable intelligence? What is enrichment intelligence? And now start producing your own intelligence um, where I've, I've seen something unique to my network and I want to share that out. And so that's where the, the sharing piece comes in is you have to have a mature foundation because otherwise as an organization, if you're just sharing data kind of ad hoc or you don't really know what you're sharing, then you either need an ISAC to sit in the middle um, and kind of help rationalize that or, or you need some of your more mature partners to help you kind of grow out that capability. There's a question of whether or not sharing should be automated as well and kind of let machines handle it. So meaning that I have some level of detection on my network, it automatically sends to some kind of central location. Um, we do some kind of massaging of the data, whether it's false positive reduction or, or scoring, and then share that back out. And that's kind of comparable to something like an automated indicator sharing program at DHS, AIS. Um, where it's, it's hope the goal is to get to machine to machine collaboration. It's just really hard from a policy perspective because it, it took a, it took a long time to get organizations to say yes to, I will share this threat data with the, the FSI sec is a really good example because ultimately your competitor has the best threat data that's most relevant to your organization because they're like you, but imagine a lawyer's face when you say, yeah, I want to help capital one be better at um, right. cybersecurity and I'm, I'm bank of America, my number, you know, big competitors. So that, that's a hard conversation for organizations to have. That makes sense, Carolyn. Yes, and I'm I'm just going to give you a warning, Eric. I know you could probably spend another few hours with Trish, but we're coming up to the end, so I'm going to give you the last questions here. No, no problem. No, I mean it's it's a very before I ask a question, it's it's a very difficult, and we're early. It's a difficult problem. How do how do you share? How do you consume? And we're very early on in our journey, right? Yeah. I mean. The automation, you know, the decision making, the risk profiling, it's still very, um, it's, it's very early on. So, so Trish, with that, I'll, I'll lead into the future. Five years from now, what does the state of cloud security look like? And how would you compare that to today? What, what changes? What doesn't? Carolyn's scared to bring her applications online in the cloud. She isn't sure. What's easier in five years? I still years? do it because I'm lazy. Well, that's the problem, just, right? You want to share your photos. You need to put them somewhere. The that's, mission, that's right. as we always that's talk right. about, the mission overtakes. But what changes, mm -hmm. Trish? So in terms of what changes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what I hope changes. Um, for, for the longest time in on-premise security, we've had this like constant realization and recognition of like we need automation. And it's always a priority. It's yes, we have to automate. We don't have enough people. Uh, insert 15 different reasons why. 
And for whatever reason, oh, for legitimate reasons, there, there's always been this pushback whenever you get into automation um, where, oh, we don't want to break anything. We don't want to cause an outage. And so to me, that that is the thing that has to change as you move into the cloud. As, as you're thinking about cloud security, you, you can't think about it the same way we did in on-premise where if, if I'm a CISO, I'm looking at this going, I, uh, I got tricked last time. I had to invest tons of money in my security infrastructure. I invest tons of resources in care and feeding, and I still have to look for a new job every 18 months because it got breached. And so what has to change in order for that to work is being able to say, one, I want to automate. And two, I want to I want to integrate security into my actual lines of business or into my development cycle. Um, a, a long time ago, I was at a company and the way that we handled, we used to release an appliance. And the way that we would handle releasing the appliance is we would do all this, we would make all our development and like a week before the release date, someone brought a vulnerability scan and we would try to patch whatever we could patch in like two days before the release. And some stuff got patched, some stuff didn't just because we were on such a tight timeline. Um, as you think about things, uh, you think about cloud security, there's a different opportunity there. You can actually integrate security into, into the development cycle with things like CICD pipelines and, and DevSecOps. And we're starting to see organizations adopt that. So it, today, security is like a super manual process. I, I always used to joke with my customers, oh, yeah, you have the analysts with like 15 different screens that they're looking at. Um, I hope that what changes in the next five years is that there's a reliance on automation and analysts aren't really looking at screens anymore and trying to figure out what the, the issue is. They're figuring out what they're going to do about the issue instead. Interesting. So DevSecOps, automation. DevSecOps, yeah. Big keys there. Absolutely. Um, in, in everything that the analyst does. And, and I, I, what you're telling me, though, is we're going to break down some of the traditional silos or walls that we experience on decision making, on, on, on budgets, you name it. Yeah, and I'd love to see more adoption of different cloud native capabilities as well. I, you know, I kind of hit on this earlier. When you think about on-prem security, you know, it's something you add after the fact when you build an application. So you're like, okay, I built this application. I go get a firewall. I go get this, and then I end up with this really expensive, complicated architecture. With the cloud, you don't really have to do that. It, you know, what you can do is you can take advantage of some of those cloud native capabilities, and instead of investing all your time in maintaining my infrastructure, if I can build that into my process then all of a sudden I can have a much more efficient, much more effective security operations center and, and ultimately allow our analysts to focus on responding to incidents instead of, well, do I patch all of my security right. infrastructure that I have out there, right? Stuff like that, updates, all that. What do you think, Carolyn? I, I feel better about the cloud. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I will tell you, I think it's a generational shift though. I, I think mm -hmm. as, as we have the yeah. younger generations come in and, and they start doing more with DevSecOps and everything else, the traditional walls will come down as people retire, as people take different jobs or move up in the process, because th these millennials, these, the, you know, these, the younger side of the workforce will just, this is what they'll just do because they do it right. They did it at one company. So they'll go to an organization and agency and do it there because it's easy. And these cloud services are, are becoming more and more robust. There are more and more of them. So Trish, I don't know if you agree or not, but I, I see that that shared responsibility model shifting a little bit with the cloud service provider providing more tools and capabilities, more services for the business to take advantage of. And maybe shifting isn't the right the right uh, phrase or word. Maybe it's 
the tools and services are more available for the individuals, for the organizations to leverage to better protect their data and their people. Absolutely. And I think like from the customer perspective, right, like security is going to look different. I kind of hit on this a little bit earlier, the idea that the cloud is this big term, but there's different flavors, right? There's something like a Lambda that's serverless technology um, where you're not worried about the underlying operating system anymore. Um, you're worried about the code itself and things like that, right? There's So when you, as you get into different flavors of the cloud, uh, there are different security concerns and different ways to think about it. And I also agree on the generational part. Like for me, for example, I actually didn't start in, in uh, from a technical background. I randomly landed up in cybersecurity and I've always thought about it a little bit differently than some of my peers did because I thought about it how, from how does this enable what I'm trying to do instead of, and how can we do this instead of why we can't. Yeah. And so I think as you see more people coming in, and I think that's honestly one of the most critical pieces to the cloud success. And I kind of challenge security people to this all the time is we have this tendency, whenever someone comes up with a new idea, to think, okay, here's all the reasons why we can't do this right. because it's insecure for these five reasons, right? And we bash it down. So, yeah, yeah. We go, we can't do this. It's not secure. It's five reasons why you can't. And, you know, I kind of challenge people, okay, well, if those are the reasons why we can't, then what are the things that we could do in order to ultimately achieve the same outcome? So it's a little bit of a different way of thinking from a security perspective. And I ultimately think if we can get that piece right, I think we'll do a lot better as a security organization. When I think a lot get of- Get away from being the department of no. Exactly. And I think a lot of developers yeah. will just start doing these things because that's how right. they know they'll be taken care of. And those discussions won't even happen in many cases. Okay. Right. Long question, Carolyn. I, I appreciate the time though. I think that was a good one. Good answer from Trish. Was. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Trish. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. And thanks to our listeners and uh, have a great week. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 